Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is proudly sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden makes the best acrylic paints, mediums, and gesso in the business. They also make core watercolors and Williamsburg oil paints. Based in New Berlin in upstate New York, they're an employee-owned company dedicated to making the best supplies for you to make your best work. Check out their products in just about any art store or at goldenpaints.com. Vanessa German is a visual and performance artist based in the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Homewood. She is the founder of Love Front Porch and the Art House, a community arts initiative for the children of the Homewood area of Pittsburgh. Her work is in private and public collections, including the Everson Museum of Art, the Fig Art Museum, the Flint Institute of Arts, the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art, the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Snight Museum of Art, the Wadsworth Anthem Museum of Art, and the Welland Museum of Art at Hamilton College. Her work has been exhibited widely, most recently at the Fig Art Museum, the Union for Contemporary Art, the Fraylin Museum of Art at the University of Virginia, Flint Institute of Arts, Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh, Everson Museum of Art, Spelman College Museum of Fine Art, the Wadsworth Anthem Museum of Art, the Studio Museum, the Ringling Museum of Art, and Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Her work has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, NPR's All Things Considered, and in the Huffington Post, O Magazine, and Essence Magazine. She is the recipient of the 2015 Lewis Comfort Tiffany Foundation Grant, the 2017 Jacob Lawrence Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the 2018 United States Artist Grant, and most recently, the 2018 Don Tyson Prize from Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Vanessa stopped by my studio for a talk about her engaging and dynamic life and work. Here's our conversation. Yeah, I've had, I've had, a, I've had a coffee. I got here at six this morning, and uh, well, a little after six, after I dropped him off, and I love like seeing the light. You know, slowly as I'm working, mm-hmm. it gets lighter and lighter in here, which is really nice. I like that too. How's it? So your studio's in your house, which is pretty nice. Yes, it is nice. Um, and I feel like I got a lot of background information on that really great talk that you gave <laughs> at Penn State, <laughs> which the students were really excited about. And uh, it was th- some of those lectures. It's the time of the day. A lot of the kids. It's a dark room, and they get a little sleepy. They were mm-hmm. not sleepy in your talk. <laughs> so you grew up in Pittsburgh. I grew up. Mostly in L.A. Oh, that's right. Formatively in L.A. and then accumulatively in a place outside of Cincinnati called Loveland. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Pittsburgh from? I moved back to L.A. by myself like uh-huh. without my family. And then my mom um, was an artist and my dad's company transferred. So um, my mother didn't have the capacity to handle the move so I moved from LA and managed my parents moved to Pittsburgh and I just stayed in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. so the one thing I I, there were a couple things that you didn't touch on in the talk that I wanted to talk about Um, like when you were really young music was big was art big I mean were you creative as a kid 
And was it something your parents kind of, you know, enabled or supported? Yes, my mom was a maker, mm-hmm. and uh, she costumed on Broadway, and she made a lot of our clothes. So I grew up in a house where um, most of the time I spent I spent with my mother because my father would leave early in the morning and drive to Long Beach and mm-hmm. go to work, and. My mother would, there are five of us, five kids, I'm right in the middle, and she would put us all into a big van and we would go to flea markets and swap meats and we would go and with her as she gathered her materials. It was a big part of our growing up was following my mom to fabric stores and notion stores and watching her gather materials that she would place in a specific room that she would close the door to and adventure into her own materials and into her own making. So I understood from the time that I was very little that you make your life. So one of the ways that my mother um, raised us was to be um, functionally generative kids, which means we cut out our own patterns, our own clothes. We made a lot of our own toys. You would make things that you wanted we weren't we didn't externalize a lot of our needs except for food um like we didn't go to the mall and buy new clothes or new shoes we would either adapt things that they got from flea markets or my mom would make stuff and that's how she sort of kept us safe she would put stuff all over the dining room table and we would make books and we would record our own musicals we were very very creative children and um, when she got tired of us which was probably more than I would ever know or understand as a kid she would drop us off at the museum she'd she'd make a couple sandwiches and it was free so she'd just leave us there all day which was traumatic for my some of my siblings because they felt really abandoned that she would leave us at the museum but that was one of the greatest things I experienced was being left at the museum all summertime. Right. Well, I imagine museums now are kind of a safe, like they feel good place. Yeah, they are sometimes. And sometimes they're the opposite of a feel good place, which is really hard because they were such safe places to me. But definitely I have to um, call out. I spent a fair amount of times in museums and I have to... um, sometimes tell museums like you're not welcoming people in here I'll like show up to meet with a director or curator and I'll just come in an uber or something from the airport or from a hotel and the first people who greet me at the museum I always report to the museum like this is what happened to me at your front desk you're um this is not a way this is an obstacle to this entire experience and if they treated me like that I can imagine how they treat other people and you have to watch that so I love museums but it does definitely cause me a kind of ache when I'm treated poorly in them which is sort of new I didn't I didn't grow up like that where people treated me followed me around and said mean things to me at museums that's not how I grew up I grew up where even the security guards (laughs) seem to love the museum and right. love the people who came in there or enjoy them anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's supposed to be a place where ideas and people are, you know, anyone comes to and can bring whatever they want to it, you know, without feeling 
like, you know, uncomfortable in any situation. That's what we think. That's what you and I think. But that hasn't really been um, the history of a lot of museums. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what a lot. That's, that's what, what, you what and the I think idea. And that's what a lot of people think about a lot of parts of our society. But you know, there's a lot of people who don't think that way. So. Yeah. Truth. But it's important for the people who have those ideas and those voices to to speak them. So. Yes. Um, so your mom would close the door and work in there, but you still had access or you still saw her working? Yeah. Was it something that we would I see, imagine that rubs off, you know? Mm-hmm. We would see her working. And the thing about what I realize now as um, a working artist that doesn't have children is what it must have taken for my mother to define her space, to yeah. define her space autonomously, aside from being the mother of five young children, that she was an artist and a maker, and that if she didn't have that um, that incarnation of her identity to... Um, to feel and to work her ideas and her being through, then she wouldn't have been okay. Mm-hmm. So when I say that my mom closed the door, there were times where she was like, get out. This yeah. is like, don't touch my things. Don't, things are where I want them and where I need them to be. Everything does not belong to you all. You have your own things. And to really, what I realize now is how important that was for my mother, but as important as it is for all artists to protect the ecosystem that they create in, especially in a time when, like when I grew up, um, CNN didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't news, like information wasn't turning through um, the 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 digital world the way that it is now it wasn't always pressing in so I recognize that what my mother was doing was um, crafting an ecosystem where she could invest her being into creating into making and then she protected that and she had to protect it from us because we were we would have touched everything right. all the time. Yeah. And, and um, but we were, it was also the space where when it was time to make back to school clothes, like each kid would have a day mm-hmm. and you'd pick patterns out. She had a ton of patterns. You'd pick patterns and she taught you to read the back of the pattern to look for the type of cloth that was needed for a particular pattern. And then you would sit for a day with either a rotary cutter or scissors and you would cut out your own patterns and mommy would sew them. But you were a part of that. Now, were you all into it, or was it something like, oh, we got to do this? Or did you kind of want to go out and buy clothes? Um, We did, because we were weird. We were, like, we were very weird children in L.A., like, super surrounded by industry kids, you know, like, professional, beautiful, shiny, glossy kids in commercials, kids, like, like, I went to school with Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. I went to school with, you know, kids who were professional children um and sometimes they were just professionally beautiful and we were weird we were like a little dusty a little grubby I was I think the nappiest grubbiest roundest brownest one of my mom's kids and so we wanted to fit in but we didn't we were not we were weird was that something that was heavy on your mind at that point or were you just doing your thing and you weren't really paying it was to it? because I've ever since I was a little kid I have been deeply sensitive and I never understood and I would spend a lot of time as a child trying to figure out 
um, like the origins of cruelty mm-hmm. because I would see people be cruel to each other um, and that and I would try to process that and I would um, I would get bullied and I didn't and it wouldn't hurt me in the same way it would just really make me curious um, and I think because when I was a kid I was around people who died young mm-hmm. and that I, I didn't understand why if it was possible for your life to just be taken away from you when you were 9 or 10 or 11 years old, why you would spend any time at all talking about somebody's tit and shoes, why you would spend any time at all um, talking about other people when you didn't know. Like, I was so intense. I was like, you don't know if it's going to be like your last day at recess or your last, because you would have that at school. You would have kids who would go home for the weekend and they would get killed. And so as a kid, I would try to figure out what it really meant that other kids took time and really were actually creatively cruel to each other. Don't you think that's just learned behavior? Like their parent, they witness it from their family. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. like you... As a kid, that is something that I came to because I would really wonder about it. I'd be like, well, they came into the world knew what happened to them and I'd be like oh people do what they see people do and it was something that I worked out and worked through um you know in my own way and in my own head especially around people like I grew up when AIDS became AIDS and Mm -hmm. HIV became HIV so I remember the ways that people were cruel to people who had AIDS or you know whether like kids who had AIDS and so that was something that I like worked to untangle in my mind about what hurt does inside of human beings and how it um, it can become a muscle. Definitely. Yeah, I, I just I always think that, you know, when you see kids in preschool, you know, they're, they're not thinking about any of the they're not just intentionally cruel to other. I mean, sometimes they'll just you know, do something to get a rise out of the other kid or see what happens, like take the toy or something and they cry or whatever, but they're not conscious of it. But like all that social learned behavior, it's all stuff that people put on you or that are put, it's put into your mind either through unconscious learned behavior in your family or the people around you growing up or it's like intentionally people telling you like, oh, these people do this or you should do this or you're not, you know? Yeah. It just seems like, unfortunately, that's a side of human nature, but... um there's a flip side of that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember being in um, drama class in the morning at my school, and there was a kid who had gotten shot in the hand, and he was healing from it. And he would unwrap this bandage and throw and show this through and through wound on his hand. And he was like, he was a tough kid. Like everybody knew his brother, and nobody was surprised that he got shot. And he, um, some kids in the class were making fun of me because something I was wearing, like I had made a lot of my clothes. And I remember this kid being like, you know, doing the exact opposite of what I thought a kid like him would do. And he was like, you know, I remember him saying, why are you wasting your time making fun of her? She's more creative than anybody in this class. Like she's doing what she wants to do. And you're sitting here talking about her. So I don't like to me, it looks like she's got the power. And I remember being very intrigued by people who swerved, you know, like if you think that they're going to go and be one way and they, they swerve. And I've never forgotten that. I've never, I remember a bunch of kids who were like that when I was 
They were probably taught that by their parents to not judge other people or to stick up for people and yeah. not, you know, make surface evaluations or, you know, make fun of people for being different or whatever it is. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just, uh, I mean, as a parent, I feel like those things become really um, powerful things that you have to teach your kids, like in your mind. You kind of think about it unconsciously when you're just yourself, you know, of like being the best person you can and not judging and, you know, just living the right way. But then when you have kids, you really feel there's an importance to, you know, passing that on. Because if you pass on the wrong thing, like you're, you know, like some of those kids, Mm -hmm. they can just take it and run with it and just, you know, and just go the wrong way as far as like the way that they should be in society and as people with other humans. So. It's not easy, you know. I I mean, it is easy in a way, but for some reason, it's complicated in our society, which is a bummer. So, well, getting back to the house, because I'm intrigued by, uh, you know, this creative environment. Was music a big part of it, too? Were you always listening to music? Mm-hmm. Always listening to music and musicals. And um, my parents had a record collection, and we would just put the records on and see what stuck. Yeah. Vinyl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The crackle vinyl. of vinyl. Yeah, it was like magic to us. We were like the needle. Yeah. You know, I remember to like studying vinyl records when I was a kid, looking at the grooves and thinking, mm-hmm. there's a song in there. And remember when they <laughs> would etch some of them on the inside, they would etch like the serial number or yeah. some sort of information. Mm-hmm. And it seemed I like remember a secret that. code. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. I would look at it so hard and be like, the music is trapped there. Right. <laughs> You know what I was always infatuated with? When you get the uh, the 78s and you'd mm-hmm. have to put that little yeah. plastic shaped thing in the middle. Yeah. I love those things. And they came in different bright, different colors. Mm-hmm. So I'd always mm-hmm. like switch them out. Would the you ever lose them and not be able to play those 78s? Yeah. That would happen to me. And, and I would try to, to rig a, yeah, and try to rig a centering device for right. it. and Never really worked. It always kind no. of got wobbly by the end of it. Yeah. I'm trying to hold it on the edge of the album and it would just warp and slow right. down. <laughs> yeah, that, and then we had this really, you know, like funky old uh, record player that always had issues with the needle. And I think I was never good at taking things apart and putting them back together. But the love of of wanting to be able to do that, I think, stems from record players. Like when yeah. the needle breaks or gets bent, yeah. and you want to figure out how to fix that. And thing. it's this tiny piece of magic. Yeah, the needle, and it's not a sewing needle. I've learned that. Right. Well, so it seems like. Because in your work, your work is so multidisciplinary, right? You're, you're doing a lot of different things. Obviously, I, I would assume that that's born out of that comfort growing up and working with fabric and work, you know, working in a lot of different ways, a lot of different materials. How did that naturally manifest itself through your creative life from when you, those early days with your mom making clothes to like today? Or did it mold and shift and change and I can remember um, always working with more than one material working with cardboard and fabric and glue and lace and yarn and there was always she would put lots of different things on the dining room table molding clay and you um, my mother was very fond we would I would say mommy how do you make a braid and she would say you have to figure that out and I would say how do you spell this word and she'd say well get a dictionary and figure it out my mother would say that 
to the point where I thought that she just didn't like us because she would always, she would point you in a direction and be like, now you have to go at it. You figure it out. So that way of um, figuring out materials, like learning the language of a material has always, and learning a language to my own ideas through materiality has been for a long time uh, like the experiencing magic in material has been a part of my life for a long time. I remember when I went to the park in L.A. and um, playing in the sand, and I just kept digging and digging under the sand until I came to clay, and it blew my mind that yeah. there was just clay in the earth, and I could take it home, and that it would do whatever I asked it to do. And that sent me into... I used to have these, like sort of euphoric fugues when I was a kid where things would make me sort of like crazy with illumination and the clay thing did that for like a week. I was going to say it must have like put this thing in your mind to where if I dig deep enough into some sort of material way of making or anything, you dig deep enough, exactly. you'll like find a diamond, you know, you'll just yeah. uncover some gem. Or yeah, that's, that, that is a true thing I have found. What, and, can you can you locate the age that you thought to yourself that transition I'm guessing it might have been a transition of thinking like oh well mom's just like really busy and she doesn't have time to like tell us all these things about what to do to where it transformed from that to being like oh she was kind of making us find our own way and sort of teaching us to you know discover those things through our own work and our own intuition well, at some point, my mom started teaching quilting and fiber art, and she would use the word intuition in her practice and mm -hmm. in her workshops, and she would talk about intuitive making. And I could, I, you know, my mother wasn't always, didn't share with us, you know, verbally at a certain level. So she didn't explain to me what it was, but I could experience it through her work and through um, the different, um, the, the sort of language of my mother's fiber art, I could decipher what that journey of intuitive making was. But I also remember somebody calling our house when I was in my 20s or something, and they were doing an oral history about a group of kids who were on the campus of the University of Wisconsin on something called Black Tuesday when the campus police took a group of black kids and handcuffed them and mm -hmm. put them in the back of a U-Haul truck. And they were like, your mother was one of those kids. And my mother went to college early. I think she was when she was 16. And so I don't know how, how old she was, but she spent um, a long, hot time locked in the back of a U-Haul van as an activist as a in the 60s, like taking over something on the campus of the University of Wisconsin. And what I started to realize was that, um, my, so my mom was a genius. My mom, you know, spoke all these different languages and she could do anything. And all the people who ever met her were like, they would tell me and they were like, you know, your mom was the smartest person I ever met. And her father was the smartest person I ever met. So I thought about what that meant for my mother to have um, been born in Louisiana, um, to have had 
um, members of her family who could pass as white. Like there were times when my mother, people thought my my mother's children, me and my siblings, were worked for my mother mm-hmm. because she was such a light-skinned black woman. And what it was like for her to have moved through the world is this beautiful, light-skinned black girl who could have passed if she wanted to, had family members who passed, but she absolutely didn't pass. She became an activist. She costume on Broadway. She did all these things around the world, and she raised us to be... She focused us um, on being creative human beings. And what did that mean for my mom to have looked at this whole world and thought, here's a way that I can make whole people in a world. I will help them to be come to their wholeness through their own ideas and through their imagination and through reading. And so there was a time when I definitely looked at what were the options for my mom in raising us? Like she could have raised us to be kids who were like, you're nothing if you don't go to college. You're nothing. Um, you have to get a scholarship. You have to go. I Like she could have done a lot of different things, but she said, you will have to make a life and you'll have to make a way for yourself. And you can do that with your own hands and your own ideas. And the, the, the choices that you make about where you put your body in the world and that didn't come till I was like in my 20s and I realized what it meant for her to have been intentional in raising black kids on this land at this time. And especially it just seems like the power that um, instilling decision making, you know, into you all. Yeah. That, it, you know, was the same power that she chose whenever she, you know, like when you were saying, well, she could have passed or whatever. It's just like she her values and what she believed in was obviously more important than any sort of like, you know, fitting in or social, like, you know, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but like kind of defying maybe her, her true morals by like, you know, socially changing or, or adapting to something else, but just really believing in who she was and what she stood for. Yeah. So I'm sure that passes through. It does. So when you were, was the moving that you guys did sort of, I'm sure it wasn't timed for when you finished something at school. So like, how did that work? Like when you were in high school, were you moving around and was that difficult or did you finish school and then? We moved when my father's company transferred at what would have been my freshman year, um, and it was, we didn't move to the end of the school year. And then I um, had two, you know, it's just two places growing up. It was Los Angeles and Loveland. And then mm-hmm. when I was over 18, I moved back to L.A. And then what, when you finished school, what, did you have your plan? Or did you, you know, did you think? When I finished high school? Yeah. Well, when I finished high school, my plan, I was really thinking about what it means to be alive in the world, to be whole, and to be, to have a life of, of decision, where it's not that I'm forced through any circumstance or oops to be in a place that, to make a decision about how I would live and be alive. So my plan was to 
because I had left high school and people were really like, you'll be nothing if you don't go to college, you'll, you know, it's because I moved from L.A. to Loveland. There weren't a lot of black people there. A lot of the black people were related and they didn't see or expect much. It felt a little bit like going back in time, like they still had the KKK there and Mm -hmm. they would come to our house and, you know, put stuff on the windows and put stuff there, which was like, felt like it was going back to the Mississippi burning to like the 1960s or something. And so I, um, wanted to know my own mind and so I said well I'll go to college but I'm only going to go for these few reasons like I knew that I wasn't going to finish I had no real desire I had no desire at all to get a degree that wasn't any of my intention in going to college for I think I was there for three semesters but I wanted to know if I could learn I wanted to know my own mind I wanted to know how I learned I wanted to know my places of uh, of capacity to absorb knowledge and to um, turn it into a living wisdom that lived inside of my body inside of the way that I moved through the world so I went to college for like three semesters I took courses that would challenge me I wanted to know I wanted to know my mind and that was my plan and that's just what I did but I did a lot of theater at the time too so I would audition for things and I was always doing more than one play at a time I did a tour of a play um, and that was something that was really important to me because I learned young that I had to feed the part of myself that was um, curious and feed the part of myself that was in love with beauty and in love with the earth and so I would always have something making something in my apartment or doing a play and learning lines and that was the way that I fed the part of myself that could go on the experiment of um, delving into my own mind at a college campus that was my plan. That's what I did until I didn't do it anymore. Did you feel like you, you that's exactly what you got out of it? Yep, because I was homeless during part of that time. I was homeless, and I made Dean's List, and I was like, okay. So I can have, like, literally the hardest thing. I was homeless, and I was ill on the street, and I couldn't afford books. So I found a way. I was like, I, information is always available. So I would get the information I needed. I would study when I needed. And I made Dean's List and I was homeless. And so I was like, I know my mind. I know that I can do. I know what it's like to fight. I know how to um, remember things. Even when times are hard, I know that I can hold on to this. And so that that happened. I was very sick on the street. And you got better. I mean, yeah, I got better. Where was was this? I was in Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to die. I was going to say that was the hardest thing. It was like I did it, and I, I probably I carried a full course load, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more, topped up, and um, I was, it was like I I, re- I wanted to die. I was in pain. I was in a lot of physical pain. I had just like, just the, all the instability of not always knowing where you're going to sleep and or if you're like eating and then being in physical pain and not understanding how to navigate a campus health system I wanted to die I felt like I was dying sometimes and at this point was your family did they move away or were they still there Mm -mm, they were still there so that's kind of why because the one thing that you were talking about you know in whenever you were speaking at the university was you know how you 
you stay in Homewood because of that's the safest place in the way. You know, the, mm-hmm. when you were talking about that. But and thinking about Cincinnati and going there and, and talking about like the clan being around and like having to deal with that stuff. Not that you don't have to deal with that everywhere, but there are No, other, that was weird to me. There are other areas where that that may be less of an occurrence than like New York City or somewhere mm-hmm. like that. Um but you spent time, a lot of time, in these, you know, in a difficult place. Did you not feel the urge to get away from that? Because I'm sure L.A. was a little more diverse. Yeah, yeah, L.A. was diverse. But I was there, you know, from the time I was 14 to the time I was 19. Yeah. Or 20. So that was, you, you stay where your people are part of that time. And then I, so I left Cincinnati and went back to Los Angeles where it people weren't surprised you know outside the Midwest it surprised me how the lack of diversity and how otherized people would be I brought my Los Angeles yearbook to my high school and people somebody said why are there so many chinks at your school and I said what's that and I wasn't you know so I definitely did leave and go back to LA yeah I mean, I feel like I'm from Pittsburgh. I've spent, I was in a band for years and we would tour the country. So you go through the country Mm -hmm. that a lot of people who grow up in urban centers never know or see really, except for when they look at the political map Mm -hmm. and they see blue here, blue there, and then red in between. And I'm like as white as it gets and I feel uncomfortable out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I would never like, I, I don't think I could ever live in an area like that. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like the diversity is so important just in all aspects of life. And I've always said that the reason people, I think a lot of people are ignorant or racist or, you know, are stuck in a certain point of view is because they don't travel. They're not around other people. They're not exposed to other cultures. So they get ignorant and then they just make, you know, stereotypical statements about it. And I can't imagine ever being in an area like that, you know, of like just living there. So I... I I can't begin to imagine how difficult that must have been. Not a slight against Cincinnati. I'm sure Cincinnati has some diversity, but it probably wasn't the easiest place to be. It wasn't. I didn't realize how, you know, I I just kept it moving a lot of the times. But there were things that happened in Cincinnati that, if they happen now, like I lived in Cincinnati when that um, black man was burned to death at the gas station. That happened a mile and a half away from my house. And like nothing ever came of it. But yeah, that still happens that today everywhere. It does. Ever comes to it. But at the time, but like, so where I live now, when something happens, we definitely like I was a part of the group of people who just walked onto the freeway last year and like took yeah. over a freeway. Um, I roll with people who do that. I do that. Right. Like I, I go and occupy shit. Like I know how to lock somebody to a set of doors, to a set of bank doors. Like I do that kind of thing. And so, but the fact that when I was a kid and this black man was burned to death and there's a video of it, you know, mm-hmm. by two young white men and that nothing came of it. There was like no taking to the streets. There was no, there was no outcry. And that got that seeped into me that that things can happen to you here and nobody will say anything about it. Yeah. But there were other ways that it's a kind of resilience that doesn't even 
you know, prickle your frequency because you're doing it all the time. You're all the time. Things happen to you every day. Like I was with one of my friends, the artist Dee Briggs, and we were hanging out a lot one summer. And at the end of the summer, she looked at me and her eyes were sort of wet. And she said, Vanessa, you know, people do things to you that they've never done to me. Like we just went to that restaurant and they told you they didn't have any seats. They didn't offer to put your name on a list. They didn't give you a pager. She goes, watch what happens when I go in there. And she said, but I've noticed this all summer. And she's like, so many things happen to you in a day and you just keep it moving. And that's because you have to, you choose to keep it moving. You choose to roll and fly and like you can chuck and jive and, and, um, allow things not to enter your center as, by dint of your will as a matter of like daily deep survival and you don't realize how much you're doing until something until it's the last straw right until it's until your Eric Garner just yelling I can't breathe or something until there's just one last time then you don't take it anymore right. and there that kind of exhaustion you know doctors are recognizing now is really costs black people their health you know it weathers you it begins to weather you from the time you're like three years old it costs every cell of your body to be that kind of um a sort of it's I feel like it's a you're I feel like you do you know that there's a place in at the by the boundary waters in Canada and um, I think Minnesota, where the coyotes and wolves have bred together and they made a new species. It's called the koi wolf. I didn't know that. I feel like that's what happens to Black people. Like you are like this sort of hybrid human creature mix of something that so that you have like a kind of skill to slip through the day um, and dodge so many different things that it's almost like you're an x-men or something it's depressing it's really depressing sometimes it is and then i think about really what the ingredients are to so you've probably heard the phrase black girl magic and Mm i think about that and i look at a lot of the girls around me and i look at the women around me and i'm really identifying the ingredients of what that magic is and some of it is that way of being um a kind of slippery easy resilience that comes because you've worked a muscle so much that you don't know that you use it all the time but because you've built that muscle up the muscles around it are stronger too so there are times when it is depressing and there are times when I think that we're um, so many of us are doing a kind of holy work daily just breathing that is um, really powerful human technology to me it's hard to speak to, you know, except that you, you hope that, yeah, I don't even know how to describe Well, what it. do you hope? You can just finish that, that just sentence. Just people, like, here, I'll give you a great example. My, so my son goes to school here in Bushwick, in Brooklyn, and um, he's, I've watched him, you know, he's 12 years old. I've watched him grow up. He's had tons of friends, different friends, and um, he, no one ever I've never seen it and I've asked him about it. No one ever mentions, you know, race and, you know, cultural things. Like, it's just, there's never, like, people aren't like, oh, your name's Munir. 
what's that like where are you from what does that mean what religion you know they're just like oh yeah that's many or that's you know who and it just feels like there's it's not an issue like it's not the issue do you know what i mean they're just kids who just do the thing and they judge each other by how they're treated and how they treat other people and it's it's not this big thing like i remember growing up in pittsburgh you know and like it was a thing like it was there was more charge i felt more charged there where did you live i grew up in carnegie but i would hang out downtown all the time and go to oakland and there was like you know there were times when you know you would feel tension you know and like i don't really feel that here much you know i know shit happens everywhere and i know that it's it you know it's foolish to think that oh this place is great nothing happens here but there is better and there is, you know what i mean there is an environment where it's it's less about that you know what i mean and it's i, I think you know, unfortunately, some people are just going to be, and people do that. They judge people, whether it's money, whether it's color, whether it's social status, whether it's uh, what they like to do or who they're married to or like how much, you know, whatever it is. People judge people, I guess, but, you know, it's it's not as stark, you know. And I see these kids just co-inhabiting this, like, cultural and social landscape, and it seems like, it seems good, you know. It seems healthy. And... um that's like for me that's a positive sign people becoming more multicultural and more, more mixed and our our society becoming less about black and white or you know at, literally and figuratively of you know I'm this you're that or whatever it hopefully that's a good thing you know what I mean and that that enables people to to those people who are making these assumptions um, it's more difficult for them to even do that because they're probably going to be that way no matter what because of the way they were raised or whatever cultural environment or whatever they were taught as a kid but it will be harder for them to even make those assumptions but I don't that's that's my hope it's um it's a thing to protect protect your hope definitely and do everything you can to to uh, contribute to an environment where you know you make a positive impact I think that's all you really can do well let's talk a little bit about art and your art okay because I know your art addresses all these things so but it's also beautiful vivid um, it seems boundless at times and you know so can you talk a little bit about the different ways that you make and and how you got to that point or what it means to you and all that stuff? Sure. I um, There was a Christmas time that my mother was at the studio in Monroeville, which used to be a horse stable, and she wanted all the kids to come to her studio, all the ones who were at the house. It was Christmas time, and to make these Christmas treetop angels and at the time, I um, was depressed, and I didn't understand why I was depressed. I really felt like a lucky person, and I didn't want to make this prefab Christmas treetop angel that my mother had all these parts picked out for, and you just sort of constructed this doll-like thing. And so I 
thought that I could understand more of what I was feeling and more of the um, ingredients of the blues and the browns of sorrow that were ensconcing me were about if I made work about that if I just did something and I use that as opposed to acting like it wasn't there and acting and, and, and investing energy into pretending. And so I went outside of my mom's studio and there were all these old ranch nails on the ground and I picked up rusty nails and I picked up things that felt right to me and I let that be okay just to make choices that felt okay to me and I crafted this figure that I just formed with self-hardening clay over my thumb and I poked holes in it and I strung seed beads from it and I used these nails and after I created that I felt better I didn't necessarily feel less depression or less sad but I felt like I understood my own hands and my own being in a way that was powerful, that I recognized that I had tapped into what would be an extra limb of my life in this way of making. And that figure that I made, because my mother was an artist, people were always asking us, um, we're asking my mom, can you show some art that your kids show? Can we show something that your children made in your show? And so um, there was this figure that I made and it was a summertime arts festival and I had it sitting there and there was a guy who was an expert in pre-colonial um, African history the Gullah Geechee they studied and he looked at this thing that I made and he said oh you're doing that thing that they do in the Congo and I said I have no idea what you're talking about and he said you should do some research because what you're doing um, that is a real thing that has been done for thousands and thousands of years this making of a power figure and that's what started me um, really creating objects um, sort of like a pharmacist where I would pull together uh, compounds of materials and I would pull together within myself um, mustering up whatever bravery of language that I could to allow the work to attend almost pharmaceutically to a need and to work with that purpose at the forefront of my being and allowing the materials to exact a kind of purpose. Um, and I would do that and then I would call in my friend who is a professor at Carnegie Mellon who the pre-colonial African history Gullah Geechee expert and I would ask her to look at my work and to see if I was doing things intentionally um, and intuitively that had um, a broader aesthetic language and she would look at my work and she'd be like well you're doing this thing with vessels I've seen this done before in this part of the Congo. I've seen it done in the Sierra Leone. I've seen it done this way. Um, and that's something very similar to what you're doing and how you're using materials. So I would work intuitively and then I would ask specific human to do a little bit of decoding. And that's um, sort of an origin place for me with the kinds of figures that I'm making. And then I... Um, I remember like reading Anish Kapoor talking about scale in work and um, I remember meeting with 
these muse- this museum in D.C., and they were like, we love your work, um, but look at this space. Look how big this space is, and look at your work. And, like, we're going to keep track of you, um, especially if you go larger, go bigger. And so I thought about that. I thought about Mark Bradford talking about scale and Anish Kapoor saying, like, this is the last forefront is scale. And that caused me to really walk into the the adventure and the dimension of what scale means. Like there's scale and material in, in the, the sort of end product of the work, but what is the grandest scale that I can occupy these ideas on? And the grandest scale that I could find to occupy the ideas was my entire life. Treating my entire life and my relationships with the earth and my relationships with um, other human beings and my relationships with the invisible world, the world of soul and spirit and magic and the world of um, the sort of everyday making. I think about seeds going into the ground and containing so much future in them. The, The grandest scale that I could occupy was the scale of my entire being. And that's the way I think about my life is as grand sculpture. Pretty good. And you've been doing that how long now? Um, so from making the figures, the power figures in my basement in Homewood in the early 2000s and coming into this, um, really ingesting a conversation with myself and my being around a scale, like 2007, 2008, 2009, and, um, and then activating those ideas about not, you know, having these really um, defined lines in my life around what is work, what is workspace, what is practice, what is process, but really allowing my entire being to um, inhabit those ideas as in, in undefined space and with as many living intersections as must come from it. So basically that meant like I stopped working for programs and nonprofits and I started saying, if this is really the mission, can you only do this mission when you clock into a job or is the mission alive? And how, and what does that mean to live, um, to live that way and to create that way? What does it actually mean for me to believe in art? Um, in a way that isn't um, that comes um, unraveled from any sloganizing. How does it? What does it mean to live and to be alive in that which you believe in? Was it really exciting whenever you would speak to these people and they would say, you know, oh yeah, this work is in dialogue with, you know, this stuff from Sierra Leone or somewhere else that you had no, you know. It was. It was exciting because when I would feel that sorrow, I would feel a kind of blues and a kind of sorrow that was not commiserate with my life or my experience. I would think this isn't right. It isn't right that I am this heavy. And that's when I started thinking that I could be carrying other people's heavy. And when I started looking at um, when Dr. Edda Fields Black would tell me about 
things that she saw in my work and around the world where she saw things, she would tell me about the purpose of them. And then I would find that the purpose would be aligned with the purposes the, that I was working the materials to towards and through. And it was very exciting. And it always happened in an environment that was, it wasn't ever just one thing. You know, she would come and she would tell me stories. And there would be information inside of the stories that she would tell me about traveling and things that she experienced that woke up parts of me that um, were also answers to what was happening in my own work. I wasn't afraid to make through mystery to say this is what felt right and to honor what felt right. The more that I started to just give permission to that open door of what felt right and not always needing to know why and how everything but really adventuring into a place of um like a sort of queer queer fierce shaking of a place inside of myself and then to have somebody um give me language to that was very exciting but it was always more than one thing happening at the same time and it um and I think about how you carry all your people with you. Like DNA is just memory and what it is to be in communication with um, a, you know, a deep strata of information in your being and how there's some of it that won't ever be able to come manifest in a 26-letter alphabet. Mm-hmm. Some of it will be come through secret languages and I'm interested in finding those that vocabulary through the work of um, these great researchers and following the intuitive markers in myself doesn't music feel like that too to some extent because it's so primal and kind of in your body and resonating it does music is so um you know, this is a way that I can explain it. So my friends were texting me when Aretha Franklin died, and I didn't know, and they're like, Vanessa, you know, it's I'm, I'm so sad Aretha Franklin died. And I said, well, why are you sad? I said, I'm pretty sure Aretha Franklin's not dead. And they're like, yeah, she is. Go on the Internet, look. And I said, she can't be dead because I'm looking at her. I'm looking at her right now. And they're like, well, where are you? I said, I'm in Homewood. And I said, where's Aretha? I said, she's outside the window. Like, I see her up by the roof of the house next door. She's outside the window. And they said, oh, I understand that. And they said, where is she again? I said, she's everywhere. And I think that there's a way, there's like a secret, original, human power inside of music I honestly and I feel like it is it's a loop it is not a straight line that it loops and it rises up and it spirals but it can spiral in any direction so it can go down and around and and that there's so much information in sound and it speaks to us in like secret language sometimes and um I really feel like music is a way that we can 
in our living forms access magic and be with it and and it's you know the longer that I live the more days and hours I have it actually deepens in its magic to me music does yeah I agree are you um do you know the music of Sun Ra some yes I mean, he seems to encapsulate like all the things you were talking about in that way. I mean, he's a virtuosic pianist, mm-hmm. but his exploration of the self and the outer being and thinking about escapism and I don't know, it's just he's like a, a universe wrapped into one human, mm-hmm. but all this music flowed out of him that mm-hmm. seems like it's coming from the universe. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or if you've ever yeah. seen someone who's just like this virtuosic <laughs> musician and you feel like... They can't actually be yeah, doing all that's that. That's a real thing. That's real. It's it's like yes, unconscious something. And to be in the that. presence of it, right? If you get like, and to be in the presence of people making music live, to be in the presence of that, it, there there's are like it. there's there isn't anything like it. I've never made a baby or given birth to a baby, but I can imagine there's an element of laboring and and um conceiving life i feel like that's what happens in music especially like and then listening to it live watching people make music watching people improv improvise this is just it is being in such a you know ferocious stew of creativity that it's infectious there's there's a really powerful powerful um force to be around yeah it's like it's like life force or something that's how i feel i saw elvin jones play at the blue note just a few it must have been maybe weeks or a couple months at most before he passed away and he had an oxygen tank and he was playing the shit out of the drum you know just like i was like how can he be still going that strong it's almost like someone took over his body while he's playing yeah that's it's and it's beautiful you know an amazing thing to see beauty yeah so with your performances do you feel that aligns closer to a kind of um direct communication or is it a little more tapping into some of your interest when you were younger of like you know putting on plays and and performing does it have elements of both or how do you think there are elements of both i do different kinds of performance and one of the one of the ways that my performance is the foundations of the performance is just the fact that I did so many plays and I mm-hmm. did so much theater so that I'm comfortable even being embarrassed on stage like that's okay for me I'm not fight I don't fight for perfection I want to be and so I have having the history of a as a trained theater artist is important but I do different kinds of performance I do one-on-one performance where it's just me and another person sitting in a chair in front of me and they give me ingredients and one of the things that the performance is is just a doorway it's a place that we're going to walk through together and really it's a ploy for me to have an opportunity to love you um, directly intimately 
purposefully and immediately. I feel like that's missing from my life so much. I think that as a father, there's ways that you can give love and that your love is called upon that is so um, deeply connected to you expanding your humanness. And I have um, sometimes a desire to do that that feels like it's going to close my throat or something. Mm -hmm. And so some of the performance is a doorway into it's a ploy. And then there's like big stage performances and that that's like everything that's music and it is improvisation. It is, you know, sculpted works. It's like devised works. It's, um, it is also a doorway into surrender. It is a doorway into surrender, into possession, you know, which is possession has its own, it has a separate energy source. So there are things that, you can do in a state of possession in a state of surrender that you can't I find that I can't um, even sort of manufacture the ingredients of outside of it to say how you get to this state how you get to this place but it is a place of surrender to possession and an obsession where you don't just play music but that you become the thing itself and I um it, when I can be brave enough, we can do that on stage also. Well, how often do you, does it take you a while to sort of, you know, come up with the ideas for the performance and then the logistics? Because some of them seem pretty um, complex as far as the, the parts, the moving parts do all of it. Well, like I never stop thinking about it or feeling things. I'm yeah. always building and writing and drawing and sketching and adding to and you know critiquing it's a, it doesn't ever stop and it all relies on what happened right before it so it's this uh, accumulation that goes through a period of refining so does it take a little while to get there i think that it takes a while to get to pure yeah Some of the stills of those are amazing. Some of the performances just look amazing. Yeah, they don't look like performances. No, well, they look like photographs. Like it, mm-hmm. it almost doesn't seem like that just happened. It, you know what I mean? Yeah. Are you talking about one of the walks in specific? Yeah. 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 And yeah. the color is just really beautiful. On purpose. Yeah. yeah, the color is on purpose, and there's when I do those, I only meet with the artists who we collaborate with once before um, because one of the my jobs as a facilitator of that work is to remove obstacles from the other humans um, from anything that would prevent them from being present so I just need to create a place where they are there's the least fear possible and um, make permissions you know for them to get what they need from it. And then if they get what they need, and I talk to all the performers and about how we are there for each other, then those places make, um, they, they create a language of loving that is true. It's not a mask of loving. You actually love each other. Yeah. 
And you're and loving with each other. And blue is like a big, important color, right? Mm-hmm. Blue. We talked about that a little bit. It's such a great, I mean, the metaphors, too, of it. I mean, yeah. Just blues and then, you know, it's such a big musical term. Yeah. Kind of blue is one of the best <laughs> records ever. I don't know if you read that book, but it's such a good book. I, I haven't read it. I haven't. But I played Ma Rainey. Oh, yeah. And I think about yeah, and researching Ma Rainey and you know who she was. It's Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith had mm-hmm. that. I started the blues thing, right. but Ma Rainey tells a story about stealing the blues. Do you know that story? No, I don't. She's talking about being at a tent show, a no, tent a tent revival show. So it's like the people who would play the church music on the Sunday morning, Friday and Saturday night. They're at the river playing in the tent, and it's. Like uh, at the time when a lot of new music forms were becoming, you know, it's like you say, like jazz started here, but what was before jazz and what was before this, like what was happening? And um, Ma Rainey says she was at this tent show and a 14 or 15 year old girl got up and walked down the aisle and started talk singing a story about having had sex with a married man. And what that was for her. And she said it was like the girl was possessed and she had to let the story out of her soul. And Ma Rainey stole the blues, stole the style of talk singing story. From that girl. Uh, from that girl. Yeah. And so I think about that, the Ma Rainey's description of that girl being compelled, like something pulled her up the aisle and pulled this story out of her and it needed to come out. And one of the things that August writes in Ma Rainey's voice says is that you know, you know, people think you sing the blues, but you, you're not singing it. You're bringing it up. Mm-hmm. You are this. And it's not, and you don't sing the blues to feel better. You sing it because you can't not, you know? And yeah. so I think about the ways that there's the unlanguageable part of the human spirit where you can't not heal yourself, you know, in some ways, honestly. And then the blue is... Um, you know, I think about water. I've thought a lot about water for my whole life because I was so afraid of water when I was a kid. And my mother threw me into the deep end of a pool and people had to come in and they had to get me. Yeah. And um, I was so afraid of water, how water could swallow you up. And my mother would never talk about the middle passage when we were growing up. And I would say, you know, why won't you talk about this? And she would get mad and she'd be like, get out of the room. I'm not talking about this. And I remember once she said they put so many people overboard and she would only, you know, she would, she could feel this thing viscerally to the point where she would get angry if, you know, we would be like, it's black history month and they're making us study this. And what about this? And she'd be like, get out of the room. I'm not talking about this. And, but I think about how August wrote about the city of bones, this accumulation in the water and how we are water and water is the oldest thing. And you're drinking dinosaur pee and it always returns. But that um, water is life. And I have always thought a lot about water and the baptism of water and how many days it would take you to um, die of thirst if you didn't have water. Like I've had obsessive thoughts about water from the time I was a kid to the point where I had to write love poems to water so that I wouldn't be afraid to swim or put my head underneath the water and so the blue is important because it's bringing in all of these um, all of these ingredients of the power and presence of water in um, all of our humanness and all of our earthlingness really being 
an earthling and that power to take and to carve to carve through you and to carry you to a new place and so the blue is really important in the work yeah the water the duality of water is like the duality of life i mean we're made up mostly of water mm-hmm. yet we have no gills and getting thrown in a deep end of the pool you think oh that's a way to learn like you quickly can adapt and no that's a way to learn how quickly you can die you know for what I mean? real it's yeah like, but you need water but and that did you ever you know have you ever seen like a movie about someone stranded on an island or something the irony that you're surrounded by water but you can't drink that water yeah and that yeah. you could die of of you know no die of <laughs> it's, thirst yes yeah, it's, it's duality right Yes. That is life. So you've got, I'm sure, a bunch of things going on. Like you always seem to be busy. And do you want to talk a little bit about the, the great sort of foundation that you started in, in Homewood and like what you do for... Oh, so so it's not a foundation. Well, not a foundation. Yeah, well, so we, I, I um, in, in having that conversation about scale... And yeah. that your life is the scale, right. that your beingness and your earthlingness is the scale. I stopped uh, dabbling in the work yeah. of my life, which meant that I was like, I'm not going to clock in and clock out of this teaching artist position that has this mission that I'll never be able to achieve unless it is whole life work. And so um, I realized that so in that the work is is deep loving. The work is creativity. The work is humanness. So to remove the obstacles to that and to sharing that. And so I bought, you know, it started on my front porch where I would make art on my front porch and just invite anybody to come and take up materials. And then most of the time it was kids. Adults were afraid oftentimes and kids would bring other adults to my porch and they'd be like, mommy, let's make something together. Went from borrowing a house from the low income housing company to buying two houses. And one house is just the art house. And it's anytime the door is open, anybody can come in. There's we built a stage in the backyard with a set of bleachers. Um, there's a big garden beyond there. And really, it's that living scale. It's human scale, but at the sidewalk level, which means I didn't have to start a foundation. I could just do it at the yeah. scale of my own two hands and say and ask for help when you need help and and um, offer it forth as can offer it forth. Well, you are the foundation of it. Yeah. Is your studio in the other place, though? Do you not mix them? Kind of like your mom, where it's like, okay, the door's shut. Don't come in here. Yeah, but I had to there. actually have a doctor tell me to have those boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, and she said, you, uh, she said you've used the word open a lot. <laughs> Everything can't be open all the time. You right. need boundaries. Like, you'll feel better if you have internal boundaries, but you need physical boundaries. Like, you got these properties. You need a fence around everything you need a special fence around that which is just yours and that's what I did so there's my studios on in my house and the art house is separate so what's a typical like Vanessa day well how's it start there's it's not typical now I travel a lot and so it depends on where I am and is the traveling just work based you know Mm -hmm. yeah the traveling is 
um, like going to Penn State and talking and yeah. wherever work shows, doing installs. You know, you cramp, you put it together in seven or ten days. You have an install. You have receptions. You have public programming. You have like crits. You like put all this programming in together around any show, right. especially colleges and universities and. So traveling to do that, and then I'm a performer, so sometimes I just am traveling to perform somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm home in Pittsburgh, my day is waking up early and going to Highland Park and letting the dogs run at the dog park, um, going home and probably immediately going into the studio, immediately starting to make something, trying the best I can to not have to answer any emails or phone calls until a right. specified period of time. Music or, from the get-go or no? Um, yeah, music or book on tape or audio books. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, listening to people tell stories. I don't do a lot of podcasts because I really like long form, so I'm listening to like books that take 18 hours oh, like to read. Long form. Yeah, I like the I like the ecosystem to stay um like the the reader's voice becomes a part of the air in the studio but if i'm listening to music i can listen to the same song for eight hours just plays over and over again yeah and uh do you like it all the travel and and getting to share your work with everyone or do you how do you i mean i'm sure it's exhausting at times like but i mean do you do you love being able to just travel with the work and sharing it with people i um, do you love the studio more They need each other. And so there's a way I have to really pay attention to what's happening with me. So I know that if I'm lagging in the studio, I can feel it and it affects all the other parts of my life. But I travel with a little studio. I have to check all the bags I ever take because I have so much paint and so much other materials with me. I know that they always think that my like hot glue gun or my caulk gun is a real gun. So I'm always getting my bags checked and, and I have to explain to people, explain in customs that I'm an artist and I sit in hotel rooms and make stuff. That's what I do. Like a lot of those blue dresses from the last blue walk in Omaha I made those in hotel rooms I made them across the country so I'm always it's um oh there's it's not ever in pure balance but it has to be fed like I have to feed making I have to feed um the parts of myself because you give I give a lot when I'm on the road and so I that has to be compensated with making a lot also right so um, it is, I'm learning how more to be a better work traveler because I do it a lot now. Um, and it's just something that I don't think anybody else can really tell you about until you do it and yeah. you figure out what the shape of it is for your kind of travel. So I'm still learning that. The balance. It's really like a musician, like going on tour. And then you're not going to be in the studio as much, and you got to start to write songs on the on road. On the road, writing songs on the road is a different schedule. It's, you're not in your home base, so you got to learn how to yes adapt to that. It's a difficult change, in, you know, and adapt adapting to different process. Really, yes, but, that's something that I'm learning. But you're communicating more to more people when you go on the road, right? You're like engaging more. You're seeing more people. Your work is out there, so talking to more people, which we all want. Yeah, I talk to a lot of people. I do. Yeah. I give a lot of talks, a lot of performances. That's good. Well, the talk that you gave was really good. great. I'm sure. Thank you. 
probably exhausting. I mean, you put a lot of energy into that. It's so natural. It's it would be much harder to give your artist talk. I can give my talk. I do it all the time, and you, yeah. it isn't. <laughs> I have some people when I go to universities there they remark on how informal it is they're like it's not it's not really a formal artist talk and I'm like that's it's, so annoying it's know, <laughs> I, I constantly am saying like artist talks no a no one knows why they all became this cookie cutter thing where you know this is my work blah blah you know and going through that long drawn out process of showing <laughs> everything you've ever done the boring slide talk, right? Yeah. Wow. How did we get I've seen those be so bad, and I'm like, but I love you as an artist. Why did you do this? Why do I have this memory now? Well, I think, well, part of it, let's be honest, you've performed. You're not, you're comfortable in the um, crowd. Like, yeah, I've, I'm comfortable. I've played music in front of people a lot in my life, and I don't feel you know, shy when I'm up on stage or like talking to people. I think a lot of artists don't have that experience. So it's a really foreign thing. Okay, spend most of your time in this room by yourself. <laughs> by all day, yourself, making yeah. you know, getting lost in your head, and then every once in a while, go out and talk to two hundred people mm-hmm. and try to be entertaining. And a lot of times, it's not, <laughs> it's not a good recipe for a. a it's not talk. entertaining, no. And and when you talk to a group, a big group of people like that, you have to engage, or or they will just fall asleep on you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You kind of want to make it interesting. But mm-hmm. I don't think artists get that education of how to do that, really. Some are naturally more engaging, and some are a little boring. Yeah. <laughs> Let the work That's do the fair. talking, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but y- yours was very good. So do you have anything, like, let's share with people where they can find your work and where, you know, they can get interested in what you're doing and see all the stuff that you're you're up to. I have a show opening at Fort Consovort on November 7th. I'm heading to Bates College Museum of Art to install a show the week of the 26th, or it might open the 26th of October. Mm-hmm. Um, That's coming up. Yeah, Sometimes We Cannot Be With Our Bodies is in Omaha at the Union for Contemporary Art mm-hmm. till the end of November um, Miracles and Gloria Bound is going to Bates College Museum of Art. The next year it goes to the David C. Driscoll Center. I'm at Mount Holyoke. Um, have a big show at Mount, Mount Holyoke with the Skinner Museum for six months of next year. And all my galleries presenting a solo booth of my show of my work at the ADA. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I can think of right now in my head without looking at a calendar when people can find you you do social media i do social media yeah instagram at vanessa l german and i write longer form on my facebook page (laughs) and my myspace yo you gotta (laughs) i'm just kidding no i don't have it (laughs) (laughs) i want to i want to start being like yeah check me out on myspace (laughs) (laughs) the good old days (laughs) Well, I felt bad because I know you're super busy and, you know, Did you? Yeah, to, you to come out of your way bad. to come talk. But I was so excited after seeing you talk to maybe possibly talk to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. And it was it was wonderful to talk today. Thanks. It was wonderful to talk to you. Have a great one. Thanks.
Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more images from the podcast and the artist's work at Sound and Vision Podcast on Instagram. You can find more about my work at Alfred Studio on Instagram. Uh, soundandvisionpodcast.com is where you can find episodes, past episodes, running all the way back from number one. You can find images on there. You can even donate to the podcast if you'd like to support it. Thanks to Lullatone and to Michael Lovett for their musical contributions. And thanks to all the listeners. 